0: And
1: let's Spencer do a strip because you're incapable. Hello and welcome to Keep Off the Borderlands. My name's Spencer, aka Free Thrall, and this is another episode for osr october this may be a short one as uh, primarily i'm responding to a couple of messages from jason connolly of nerds rpg variety cast and i'll see how things develop from there so let's see what's sitting in the speak pipe
0: there we go spencer that's what we're going to do I think we get you, we get James Knight, maybe John Allen Large, I don't know, to come on for a Video Nasty episode of Cerebivore. I think that's a great idea. And if, I don't know, we'll see if the other people think that's appropriate for Cerebivore. If they don't, then we'll put it on Nerds RPG variety Cast because I, I tend to do more with exploitation horror movies. But either way, I want to get a panel of you guys across the pond to talk about Video nasties. Thanks for mentioning that. And we know that James Knight's earned his place on there with the with his knowledge of folk horror and whatnot. Because some of those folk horror now or movies caught some pretty um, tough ratings. Anyway, great suggestion. Thank you for saying that. Reminding me about that, and I'll get on it.
1: Well, thank you, Jason, for getting on that and providing us with uh, a platform such as Cerebravore. As I I say, Jason is on that one already, and we've scheduled a date. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, being able to chat. I think we're probably going to have a a broader discussion about horror movies in general. And, uh, yeah, very much looking forward to it. Thanks, Jason. And um, uh, we've got something else from Jason here.
0: Hey, Spencer, Jason here. Yeah, even though the OSR started as a way to give a framework to write new adventures for the old TSR games, even from the beginning there was talk about playstyle. and in the early days, Dan Proctor over at Goblinoid Games released Gore, which was effectively the same thing for BRP, or, you, you know, the Call of Cthulhu rule set. Although it didn't have horror sanity rules, so obviously it was meant more towards fantasy stuff. But <clears throat> when you look at it now, I think it's much more play-style, DIY and free-form and all this kind of thing. I do wonder if, you know, how long does revolution last, right? So is it really still revolution or a revival or a renaissance, or is that part of it over? The, OS, the old school's not dead. And new things are being produced all the time for that mindset of play and and for those various games. But is it really still OSR anymore, or is it something else? Because the revival happened, you know, starting 20 years ago, whatever, and it happened, it's done, it's revived. So now what is it? That's my question.
1: Yeah, thanks for that, Jason. I was not aware that gore had been around for for that length of time. It's something I'm. I, I was going to say I'm familiar with. I'm not really familiar with it. I, I'm pretty sure I've got the PDF somewhere, but yeah, I was not aware that it had been around for so long. Well, you, you mentioned uh, the, you know the the beginnings of the OSR coming from that um, the creation of Osric, and uh, I was listening to Matt Finch talk about that recently. I'm not sure which podcast it was on because he's been on quite a few recently. He was talking about how surprised he was that Osric was picked up in the way that it was and that people were using it to play games with. And kind of tickles me that that never even crossed their mind that that would be something people would use it for. You know, it being initially developed in order for third party creators to create stuff for AD&D without having to worry about, you know, copyright infringement, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I found that quite amusing that they didn't even consider that people might want to use it as a rule set for playing, assuming that people would you know, stick with using their, the rules they already owned. It's difficult to imagine people wanting to create material for AD&D without actually already owning AD&D. And it, as I understand it, it's using those OSRIC rules to actually run games that gave birth to what would become the OSR movement. And um, yeah, yeah, that's a, a really... Really interesting question you ended with there. Personally, I think that we're kind of beyond what those letters mean individually. You know, what does each letter stand for? Old school, revival, renaissance, rules, revolution, whatever. And that it's more a case of what do those three letters combined Mean When you see them on a product, is that going to deliver the kind of content, the kind of experience that you expect? Or has that label now become so broad that it's no longer helpful for you? It no longer really defines anything. Personally, I mean, now I've got a book sitting in front of me and I'm not going to disclose what that book is just yet because I want to talk about it later on in the episode. To me, it's got OSR written all over it, although those letters don't appear on it anywhere at all. However, the content is kind of gonzo fantasy. There's elements of sci-fi in there. It's compiled of material from the blogosphere, the art, screams OSR, and yet it's completely system neutral. It can be used for any game at all, as long as you want that game to have the same tone that is present here in this material. So that's what it comes down to, really. I mean, I've got no problem considering something like Troika as being OSR, Mothership as OSR. Now, I know that there's absolutely nothing about those systems that's related to TSR at all, apart from the fact that Troika is basically Advanced Fighting Fantasy and Fighting Fantasy was Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson's attempt to present a simplified D&D style game to the British public. And Mothership, I'm not sure what that system is based on, but both those games suggest a certain kind of experience that I am happy to accept as being part of the OSR. However, if you want to argue against that, not you personally, I mean, you know, if anyone wants to argue against that, I don't know how well I could defend my position. Do you know what I mean? I'm quite happy for, for those games to not be OSR as far as other people are concerned. I hope that makes some sense. I totally understand the idea of considering games that are only derived from or compatible with TSR D&D. If that's OSR to you, that's fine. I totally get that. Which is why this new NSR, New School Revolution label, and as I said, when, when that label was created it was kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way you know this new school revolution idea it's not really new school and it's not revolutionary it's simply a way to continue creating a certain kind of content and putting it under a, a heading so that people who see that label kind of have a an idea of what they're going to get. And when I see a game that identifies itself as NSR, there's a good chance that I'm going to enjoy that content. I guess is the the best way to put it. I hope that kind of answers your question. (laughs) I have to add here that every time Rob C. of Down in a Heap says... That Into the Odd isn't really OSR. My heart sinks a little. But that doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I respect Rob. He has a lot of wisdom to impart as far as gaming is concerned. I don't really eat cheese. To me, Into the Odd is a game that plays into that OSR philosophy. In fact, um, Chris McDowell did a very interesting blog post. I'll have to dig that out, where he actually looked at a list of kind of OSR principles and compared it to what Into the Odd actually does. And uh, I think that's what I'm going to look at next. But yeah, just to kind of try to pull together what I'm saying there the OSR suggests something it's very difficult to define but however vague that label is to me it still suggests a certain kind of content and uh, yeah I think that's about as much as I can say thank you very much that question, Jason. I really appreciate it. Cheers. I wanted to read you that Chris McDowell blog post that I referred to. This is from Chris's Bastionland blog on bastionland.com posted on the 1st of July 2020. How OSR is Bastionland? I often get asked whether Electric Bastionland is an OSR game. Rather than try to define the OSR as a whole, I'll point you somewhere that I think explains it well. The Principa. Apocrypha is a fantastic one-stop shop for understanding OSR-style play, both the document itself and the accompanying links provided. But gameplay aside, the OSR is also a community of sorts, with all the decentralised segmentation and arguments over definitions and identities that come with it. But for the most part, I've found it full of creative people that are always happy to share weird ideas dig into how to improve your game and shine a light on both hidden gems from the past and interesting new creations so are into the odd an electric bastion land osr from my perspective yes but it's not always that simple with into the odd i think people tended to assume it was osr because it was released the height of the G-plus years, so it was much easier to point to a large online gathering of people and say, that's the OSR. When I was playtesting and developing the game, I largely did so with people that enjoyed the OSR style, and many of the sessions I played were part of an organised play where people could bring existing characters to new systems. In those games, I was literally running the game for BX characters and running them through dungeons, so it doesn't get much more OSR than that. So, in general perception, the Odd was branded OSR, even though it diverged quite radically from its source material in comparison to the retro clones that dominated the scene. Since that time, there have been a number of popular games operating under the OSR umbrella, but clearly moving away from the mechanics found in BX. Black Hack, Knave, Maze Rat, Mothership, Troika, Best Left Buried. We saw some seminal blog posts that discussed OSR play from a different angle, while preserving the spirit. For me, the standout moment is on romantic fantasy and OSR D D by Joseph Manola, which framed OSR play as closer to Miyazaki the Moorcock. The message here isn't that this should become the new OSR canon, but instead that OSR style could cover a wider range of games than you might think from first glance. A while after that, G Plus died, scattering the OSR community between Balkanized discords, the Twitter hellscape, and even some lost souls doomed to wander Facebook. Even the blogs, which formed the very core of the OSR while G+, was still growing, are starting to be viewed as something of a relic. I'm predominantly on Twitter. My circle shows a much wider variety of gameplay styles than I would see on G+. There's the ocean of indie games, people that mainly play 5th edition d d and people that are playing things from itch.io that push the boundaries of gameplay into directions I would never have even considered. This is great for two selfish reasons. I get to hear about games I wouldn't ordinarily have come across and I get to shout about my game to people that wouldn't have heard about it at all back in the G Plus days. Even people that I think would hold very little interest in the more traditional BX clone side of the OSR. So it's time for a thorough analysis of how OSR is Electric Bastion Land. More like how clickbait is this blog post, right? Please read this with the understanding that I have my tongue firmly in my cheek. According to people that follow me on Twitter, it's basically two-thirds. But who cares what people think? This is my indulgent naval dive. In 2018, a question was presented to people in the circle of Scrap Princess, an icon of the G Plus OSR. What are assumptions about how to play an OSR adventure that you think might not be commonly held as desired? The answers were then condensed into 10 points by Patrick Stewart, which he would later use in his ArtPunk post, which he pitched as a subcategory of OSR. There was a lot of discussion around how many of these points are just good general game advice rather than specific to OSR, but I'll address those as I move through the list. I'll tackle them one at a time and will try to detach myself from personal opinions and look at what's purely in the book. No half marks. If I feel like I can't fully justify a point, then it's a no. This is a game about interacting with this world, as if it were a place that exists. Yes, while the world of Bastionland is left open to the conductor's interpretation, I feel like there's a lot of content in the book to support a solid real place. A mapping procedure gives it some grounding and the players are encouraged to think of their surroundings as real. The relatable 20th century feel helps things feel more real in my experience. Killing things is not the goal. Yes. Every encounter is doing something besides wanting to kill slash die and there's no reward for killing. Your goals are getting money to pay your debts and not dying. Fighting might help with the former, but hinder the latter. There is nothing that is supposed to happen. Yes, lots of emphasis is placed on player choice and agency. The conductor is encouraged to create situations, not plots. However, there is definitely an assumption that the player will go hunting for treasure. They are treasure hunters after all. But I feel like the mapping procedure ensures these aren't linear affairs and there are enough improvisation tools in the book that players can always go off-grid. Unknowability and consequences make everything interesting. No. Consequences are a big yes. There are numerous references to them throughout the book. But unknowability is where I'm a bit of an OSR heretic. There's definite mysteries in the world, but I stress giving more information than you might think. So I don't really have unknowable things, you just need to ask the right questions. You play as your character, not as the screenwriter writing your character. Yes, 100%. The only reference to plot, or story in the book, are things that appear in your character's failed career. I think that sums it up nicely. It's your job to make your character interesting, and to make the game interesting for you. No, this fits to some extent, but I feel like the whole point of failed careers is to give you a more interesting character than you'd normally get with a level 1 thief. One of you is probably going to be something weird like an alien or another might get a sentient helmet so I don't think this one fits well even if I agree that the player should take their concept and make it their own it's not entirely their job If you find yourself in a fair fight your tactics suck Yes, for sure the characters don't have any real mechanical advantage over some other scrub from the streets. You're outright told to be smart or die. The answer is not on your character sheet. Yes. I mean this is almost entirely the point of the game. There isn't even a character sheet in the book because I'll often just scribble them onto paper to avoid getting too distracted from the game itself. Sure, sometimes you'll use things on your character sheet to solve problems, but it's only really going to come from the equipment. So I feel like it represents the character rummaging through their backpack, rather than the godlike player surveying a suite of mechanical powers. Things are swinging. Yes. Okay, this is a tricky one. Some elements are the very definition of swinging. Particularly, every roll is a flat, even distribution. There's no rolling advantage on attacks, high modifiers, re-rolling ones or other tricks that games use to ensure a higher result. Even if you're packing a D12 cannon you can roll a 1. Character creation uses 3D6 for ability scores but there's no drop the lowest, no re-rolls, no point by and you've got the infamous D6 HP roll in there. Just begging to score a 1. One of you might have strength 18 and another strength 3. Deal with it. Saves a straight up pass fail and use a single d20 for linear distribution. Even with strength 18 you've got that 10% chance of rolling 19 or 20. But combat is designed very much to be less swingy than d d You won't get randomly critted to death out of nowhere and you probably won't spend multiple rounds where you will whiff your attacks, as this is one of the key divergences from D&D, and one of the most deliberate design choices in the game. I'm torn on the final call. Compared to BX, it's more swingy in some ways, less in others. But if I'm comparing it to RPGs as a whole, I feel it just tips over to the swingy side. You will die. No, there are references to the risk of death scattered throughout the book. And there's nothing to save you. No hero points or death store mechanics. Or are there? I've said before that it's much more common for a character to be dying in a game than for them to actually die. Death happens for sure, but I feel like it's much less inevitable than something like BX. If it were, you can die, then I'd be 100% behind it. But here I feel like death is always avoidable somehow. The final score. By that measure, I score 7 out of 10. Conclusion. When it comes to game design, I draw most of my inspiration from OSR creators. Some of these ideas are shared by other scenes, particularly PBTA games but some are largely seen as obsolete. I've found the vast majority of the OSR to be a welcoming community and I'm happy to be a part of that. But I feel like the label is starting to lose traction as people move away from blogs and towards Twitter. Is Electric Bastion Land an OSR game? When I trace the development of the game, I think it clearly is. It's diverged, but the core is still there. There'll be a link to that article in the show notes and it won't be a revelation to anyone to hear me say that I like the way Chris thinks and I'm 100% on board with the sentiment of that article. In response to Jason's question earlier in this episode, I referred to a book that was sitting in front of me. A book that I think of as really encapsulating that OSR style, that flavor. And that book is The Dungeon Dozen by Jason Scholtis. Random Tables for Fantasy RPGs. Now this is a physical copy here that I picked up from Amazon in the UK I would imagine it's available in the US but all the tables in here are still available freely online as far as I understand it from Jason's on on Jason's blog roll1d12.blogspot.com and This is, well, it calls itself Volume 1 of the Dungeon Dozen. I'm not aware of a second volume being available, but I would imagine that there are probably more tables online. Yeah, this book is comprised of entries from the Dungeon Dozen blog, brackets, roll1d12.blogspot.com. Look for additional tables there. There you go. A very helpful online index to these and all subsequent tables can be found at blessingsofthedicegods.blogspot.com. I will put a link to that in the show notes. This is copyright 2014. So eight years old. God, that's scary. Um, And this is a book of 214 pages, including An extensive index. Uh, So there's essentially nearly 200 pages of tables. And some of those pages have two tables on. So over 200 different tables here. This book is also filled with some wonderful art that is very OSR. It's all black and white. It has a certain degree of humor to it. Very evocative stuff, is it? I don't. I think it's by a variety of artists. Yes, there's stuff here by uh, Jason Schultes, Chris Brandt, John Larry, and Stefan Poag. These are all D12 tables, hence the dungeon dozen. Just reading out some of the table headings will give you a good idea of what we're dealing with here. And what makes these tables different is that they are oddly specific and could very easily serve as prompts to create entire adventures. Um, Let's have a look for curious-looking tables. Apocalyptic visions in the crystal ball. Almost indestructible villain death requirements. Available means of interplanetary travel. Benevolent parasites of the underworld. These blood-curdling screams off in the distance are actually... (laughs) Campaign pitch elevating amalgamator. Dungeon conspiracy theories enchanted conveniences of the rich and sorcerous <laughs> the gastric obstruction that killed the colossal worm <laughs> messages intercepted from the underworld courier service newly bred hench monsters and utility beasts occupants of the colossal ufo anchored to the mountain top partially obscured entries in the stolen spellbook puzzling documents found amongst personal effects results of successfully listening at door of empty room super quick gonzo pulp monster generator targets of the sorcerer's contracted assassins What the wizard actually has up his sleeve. What's up with the guy behaving mysteriously in the tavern. Zealots in the streets. I hope that gives you some idea of what this is. Just a wealth of great prompts, I think, that could lead to all sorts of shenanigans. Just a hint at the treasures hidden. Inside this wonderful book. I've just been listening to Goblin's Henchman episode 135. Do you even OSR? I believe it was called. And I thought it was very interesting the comments he made about. First impressions and how that may have shaped his idea of what the OSR is. I think Goblin's Henchman was spot on. When I think about those creators I first discovered people like Chris McDowell, Ben Milton, Skirples, Emmy Allen, Luke Gearing, Nate May, Mike Evans, Daniel Sell, um, even Goblin's Henchman himself so many other great creators that I'm failing to mention here. All wonderfully generous people still producing great stuff to this day. They are the very same people I think of when I think of the OSR, you know. And, and while we're on the subject of creators within the OSR, um, it's probably a good point to give a shout out to all those who are putting out podcasts for OSR October Goblins Henchman has just released a second episode. And we've got the Down in a Heat Podcast has been putting out some great stuff. GM Shadow has an episode. At least one episode, I believe. You've got the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast has put out a few episodes. and Jason of Nerds RPG Variety cast has been joining in. Bandits Keep has been choosing material that I'm particularly interested in. You've got that new podcast, Decahedron RPG podcast, Decahedron with a K, Pink Phantom, Clerics Wearing Mail. We've had an episode, I think, from We Timorous Bushi as well. And of course, not forgetting some incredible stuff being put out by the Red Caps podcast. Some awesome Awesome interviews that Kevin is doing over there. I've just listened to the to him chatting with Ray Otis and, uh, yeah, that was an incredible conversation that covered a broad variety of, uh, of topics. Well worth checking out if you haven't heard that already. I uh, hope I'm not forgetting anyone there. <laughs> oh, Minions and Musings. Sorry, Evil Jeff. I knew I was missing somebody out there. And the arcane alienist. I really should write these things down. Well, that's about enough from me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your messages. I really do appreciate those. If you'd like to leave me a message, you can use the messaging function on the Anchor web page. There'll be a link to that in the show notes along with a link to SpeakPipe, which may be more helpful for you. You can always message me via my email address at gmail.com Be that text or audio. You can find me on Twitter, at Free Thrall. There's also a Keep Off the Borderlands Facebook page and I can be found on Discord, in the Audio Dungeon and on a few other channels. And If you can figure out how to find me, you know more about how it works than I do. Alternatively, you can find links to all those things over on my card page at free thrall, one word, dot card with two R's. I'd also like to thank TJ Drennan for all his wonderful music and it just remains for me to say take it away TJ